Welcome to the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club Show presented by Honey Stinger. This is a podcast that will make you want to get outdoors and will give you some great ideas as a sport parent, athlete, or coach. Born in the beautiful mountain town of Steamboat Springs, Colorado, the Winter Sports Club was founded over a century ago and now serves a majority of kids in our community and has produced more Winter Olympians than any other club in North America. There are secrets and great stories to share as we play year-round in these mountains we call home. Our calling is to develop complete athletes on and off the mountain by cultivating a passion for the outdoors and a love of sports at all levels. Stay tuned to hear from Olympians, athletes of all ages, coaches, experts, and people who are doing amazing things to make an impact in our community and in their sport. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former professional triathlete who finally discovered the joys of skiing in my late 40s when I moved to Steamboat Springs with my family. We immediately discovered the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club, and it's become a huge part of our lives as my husband, Tim DeBoom, is a ski and bike coach, and my daughter, Wilder, has found happiness, friendship, and joy through skiing, jumping, riding, and more. I am thrilled to bring the positive energy of the Winter Sports Club to people all over the world. Thanks for listening. Now let's get started. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. You are in for such a treat because I am sitting here in what they call the crow's nest, sitting, staring out at Howelson Hill in the early snow days um, with ski legend Ann Battelle. And only in Steamboat do your kids get to be coached and guided by a four-time Olympian, world champion, six-time national champion, who also happens to be an amazing person with a really cool story to share. Anne, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nicole. I'm really looking forward to it. Don't you wish that people just walked around and introduced you like that all the time? No, absolutely not. (laughs) That's not the way I that's not the way I roll. <laughs> I get that about your personality, but it is kind of fun today. Okay, all right, let's jump right in. So, you have coached all levels of the club from U13 to U19 over the last 9 years in your discipline, freestyle or mogul skiing, whatever you want to call it. And I actually think that's a good place to start. Let's do a little education on this freestyle mogul world. Can you explain what these things are? Certainly. So mogul skiing is, if you can imagine looking down a steep slope and there's a whole bunch of Volkswagen bugs, cars I'm talking, um, in front of you, and you're trying to get from the top where you're standing through all those bumps all the way to the bottom in the straightest line possible. And just to make it a little bit more exciting, there's a couple of jumps in there where you have to go off the jump, perform a trick, land the jump like it's nothing, keep skiing, hit the other jump, land the jump, and get down. So it's a judge sport. Um there is a speed component that's worth 20% and the rest, uh, 20% of your score is also the jumps and 60% of your score are your turns. So it's a super exciting, it, it lasts about 30 seconds, give or take 10 seconds and um, energy, there's music blasting and um, it's, just a, it's just a really exciting action sport. 
It's so funny. The, one of the first things you mentioned was like Volkswagen bugs. So I'm a newer skier and my very first season of skiing was two years ago. And uh, I remember my husband and I, he's like, I think you could do the morning side. And we go over there and, and I am faced literally looking down this hill. And I was like, Tim, those are as big as cars, like Volkswagen bugs. So I got to say, you aren't kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Okay. So, so we have a little idea of what the sport is that you have done and that you coach. Now, I want to talk about how you got into it. You had a really cool circuitous journey. Let's start with your childhood. Tell tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what sports you did, and what little Anne was like. Okay, so I grew up in Williston, Vermont, which is right outside of Burlington, Vermont, which is the biggest city in Vermont, that is. Um, I was the third of four children, and my dad was a professor at the university, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom for a while, and then she was a guidance counselor at a high school after that. And uh, my brother is three years older than I am, my sister is four years older, and then I have another sister who's four years younger. So I was I was a little bit in no man's land, but not as much as my younger sister, actually, but um, I was always trying to keep up with my older brother and sister, and my mom was always trying to find something for us to do to get outside. My mom was all about, you have to be outside. Um, I was not interested in being outside, and she literally sometimes would put me outside and shut the door and tell me I had to wait 10 minutes before I could come back in. So it's kind of ironic that <laughs> skiing is what I pursued. But um, So we grew up doing lots and lots of sports. We played tennis. We were on the swim team. We played soccer. We did gymnastics. My brother played hockey. Um, I played softball. and um, But we also skied on the weekends at a place called Bolton Valley, which was this four lift area that was huge to me. But I actually, two summers ago, went back to check it out. And it was amazing to see it because I haven't been there since I was probably 12. But to introduce it to my kids was, was really fun to have them see back to the roots where I learned how to ski. So um, so I did, uh, I played softball and did gymnastics and played soccer through high school. And then I went to Middlebury College and played soccer there. And when I was a junior, now senior, excuse me, um, in college, the world championships for mogul skiing was at Lake Placid, which was about two hours away from Middlebury. So I went over with a friend to watch it and uh was in my cocky 21-year-old self, not impressed at all, and was like, I can take these girls. And so through um, a few conversa conversations with um, Jeff Good, who was who was also pursuing a career in mogul skiing and was living in Steamboat at that time, but had gone to my high school, um, I learned a lot about what it would take to be a competitor and ultimately ended up graduating from college and moving to Steamboat, joining the Winter Sports Club. This is in 1989. And um, and skiing and learning learning how to be a competitive skier. I had grown up skiing, but I'd never actually knew that much about competing in mogul skiing. I didn't know how to jump, although I did have pretty good air awareness just because I grew up with a trampoline and had done gymnastics. And I, um, so I it was it was kind of it was a pretty steep learning curve for me. Like once I figured out once I got a few tips and figured out what I had to do. Um, I was able to move up through the ranks fairly quickly. So I met Park Smalley, who was then the program director for um, Freestyle at the Winter Sports Club. And at this point, I'm 21 years old. So he had seen many people 
you know, just trying to just trying to make it and trying to make it and getting older and older. And he's like, well, you know, you're starting late. You're 21. Um, let's make a goal of trying to make the USD team in two years and, and see what happens from there. So um, that's what we did. And long story short, I made the US ski team two years later, and I qualified for the 1992 Olympics as well. Oh, that was like the biggest whirlwind I've ever heard. <laughs> I can't even, it blows my mind, honestly. Like, I, I feel like we could do a little myth busting right now with you as an example, because as parents, we feel this pressure to put our kids in the sport that they will become serious about and competitive in and excel in and maybe make the Olympics one day by the time they're like seven. I'm not kidding. Like, it just feels like if your kid hasn't tried the sport when they're young, I mean, at least by 10, they don't have a shot, right? So uh, can we myth bust that a little bit? How and why were you able to succeed at the level you did in skiing and not really start competitively until you were 21? Um, well, in full disclosure, it was different times back then, for sure. There were, there were, um, this is 30 years ago that we're talking about. There were less people doing it. It wasn't quite as technical. The errors weren't quite as, um, we didn't do flips, for instance. Um, however, I grew up being, being competitive in everything that I did. And so I learned how to work hard. I learned how to be coached. I learned how to be my own best coach, and that was across multiple discipline or multiple sports. Um, so I had all this experience, and even though it wasn't mogul specific, um, I knew I knew how to compete, and I knew how to um, calm my mind in the gate. And I, I I had done gymnastics in high school. You know, I was on that four inch balance beam, four feet in the air. Um, in a leotard on top of that. So it talk it, about a judged sport. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in a skimpy uniform. Absolutely. Um, so I had all those skills and even though I didn't have the mogul specific technique, um, that, that came with just, you know, putting in the hours on the hill and, and it's not like I just showed up and suddenly was good. I mean, I definitely, I trained my butt off. It definitely, like, that was a goal of mine to make the U.S. ski team. So once I was in Steamboat, um, that's that's where I put my energy in. That's where my priorities were. And um, just using that experience of, of being a multi-sport athlete um, really helped me excel in mogul skiing. And now that I'm a parent, I have two daughters. Um it's always been really important to me to be involved in in being a multi-sport athlete. And um, I, I don't like the idea of your kid doing one thing all the time because I think it just sets you up for sets them up for burnout, injuries, um, just boredom after a while. you know, you just kind of go through the motions. this is what I do. So every day, this is what I do. And I just think, to have to, even if you're, even if they're not as good at something else, like to have to get in there and um, work hard at something that's totally different. And, and, you know, maybe they're a really good skier and not a really good basketball player. So in order for them to get playing time on the basketball team, they have to work that much harder. And it just, it all complements each other and will help them be a better skier. 
Okay. All right. So you mentioned you you are now parenting, but at one point you were being parented and the things that made you great may have um, been influenced a bit by your own parents. So I'm curious as to, you know, a few things are already standing out. Like you were obviously competitive when you were young. You had confidence, you know, you called it cockiness. Maybe it was confidence, you know, um, can you talk a little bit about your parents and how they helped guide you through your athletic career? Granted, it wasn't skiing in those early days. I mean, you were recruited to play soccer in college, you know, and you did gymnastics at a high level. And also with your siblings, what did you learn from your parents that maybe you are now honing in or fine tuning and passing on to your own kids? Um, the biggest thing that my parents did was let me be me and let me do what I wanted to do. They were not, if I had soccer practice, I was the one like, come on, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. It wasn't them saying, hurry up. We're going to be late. It was definitely, it, it came from me. Um, and if you want your kid, I feel if you want your kid to be really invested in their sport, they it has to come from them. No matter how much you want them to do something, it's it has to come from them, and it has to be driven by them. And they have to be on top of things and know and know you know their schedule and know that their equipment is prepped and know you know just know that it's their journey, it's not yours. And my parents had four kids; they were running around like chickens with their head cuts off, cut off. So, um. At many times we had one car with four kids and two parents who worked and, you know, trying to get rides and like it was not ever easy, but we each were responsible for ourselves and were able to and had to um, figure things out. And I think that was super, it was, it was really, I hated it at the time because it was such a fuss to always try to figure out how we're going to get somewhere. And we lived out in the boonies in Vermont too, of course. So, um, but it taught me what was important to me and what I was going to make happen and how I was going to make it happen. So I think that's really important. And, and now, you know, we've got cell phones and we're checking on our kids all the time and it's, and I do it too, for sure. Um, but trying to, you know, trying to let my kids do what they want to do and not what I want them to do has always been really important to me. And also being an Olympian, um, it's tough to be a kid of an Olympian because everyone says, Oh, are you going to go to the Olympics too? And it's, you don't just sign up to go to the Olympics. I mean, there's a lot that goes into that and it can't, it can't come from me. It has to come from them. So w learning that from a young age for them is, I think is super important if they want to go far in a sport. You know, that brings up actually an interesting point. I'm not sure it's going to be relevant to everyone, but I think it's interesting. And I want to know, you know, a lot of people say you just, you cannot coach your kids. Right. Um, in giving your kids into the hands of trusted coaches is the way to go. They're never going to respond to you as they would a different kind of coach. You coach people who aren't your kids. Did you ever also coach your own kids? Absolutely. I started coaching my older daughter when she was in kindergarten in soccer, and I coached her for probably f three or four years. And then, um, my younger daughter, I started coaching in soccer when she was in first grade, and I just finished coaching her last year. So I've coached her fall and spring for however many years that is, 
12 years or something like that. Um, and I've coached her in skiing through, uh, this is the, what, the seventh or eighth year that I've coached her in skiing as well. So, okay. So myth busted again. <laughs> Another myth. No, you're a good myth buster today. We like myth busting, but it takes it takes a special relationship and it takes mutual respect. I don't tell my daughter what to do, and she she fall she she watches. I would say what I do, and she takes what she likes from it and learns from it, and she definitely respects my opinions. Um, I don't nag her. I try really, really hard to let her be her and let her make her own decisions. And and again, it goes back to this is her journey, not mine. My job is a ski coach, but my job is not to make my daughter, you know, a world class skier. That's that's up to her. So I will I will help her, but they're her dreams, and um, I will I will watch her, coach her, and encourage her. But at the end of the day, she's the one that has to put in the work, um, and. It can get hard at big races because my nerves are probably worse than her nerves. But again, it has to be, um, the focus has to be on her and letting her be her best, her best self. You know, since we're on the parenting train, um, you are currently coaching. You're coaching, uh, U17 and U19 right now? Um, and, right? and the FIS kids as well. Yes. What is FIS? FIS is the, um, so our kids ski the NORAM level, which is um, the Canada and U.S. tour. So um, it's it's a step above our Rocky Mountain tour. So the Rocky Mountain is just in the U- is just in Colorado. Sorry, and yep. NORAMs is the next level. Got it. Okay, so the elites that are on a track. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So what are the biggest concerns you hear from parents of the kids you coach? Um. Freestyle moguls is a pretty fun group of kids and it's a pretty fun group of parents. And for the most part, people don't get too intense when you get to the higher levels and you have to qualify for certain races. Um, it can be, it can be, uh, probably more nerve wracking for parents than even for kids because they don't, they don't know and they aren't the ones skiing. So I think the most important thing is educating the parents and making sure they know that well first of all this is their kids journey not theirs and second of all you know the you can be as nervous and worry as much as you want about your kid but your kids the one that's going to perform so you just need to be supportive you just need to be there you need to give them a big hug and i love to watch you ski it's um it's because moguls is um it's kind of a stadium sport and there's music playing and it's a, it's a big party really. So that really helps with the intensity level. Like there's always a little bit of, you know, dancing going on at the bottom or um, it's, it's a little, it's a lot mellower say than an Alpine race. Oh my God. Okay. Let's talk about this party. So uh, <laughs> there are a lot of different disciplines you could pursue on skis, but at 21, you were called to moguls, right? Like something about this called to you. Is that right? So, yes. Yeah. So I grew up skiing um, and I always had hand-me-down equipment and being the, th- the third of four kids and we didn't do things like get your skis tuned. And I grew up in Vermont, which was solid ice. So um, what I learned was that if I got in the moguls, I could 
actually slow down because I could slam into the moguls rather than getting on the icy trail and go flying down the hill. So really, that's what drew me to mogul skiing. And because um, you didn't know how to stop. Yeah, didn't know. Well, <laughs> slow down. Yeah, didn't know how to slow down. So when I moved to Steamboat, um, usually people come from the East Coast and they're these super carvers and Park was like, wow, where are you from? I was like, Vermont. He's like, jeez, never seen anybody like you before. So he had to teach me how to actually carve and make a turn. Why so, were you like fearless or what did he mean by that? He meant that I didn't know how to use my, <laughs> use my edges to make a turn. I was using the moguls to um, to help me control my speed. <laughs> And I, I hate, I hate to say this because this is exactly what I don't want my athletes yeah, to but hear. It makes you human and you had to learn it, which is actually going to turn you into a better coach than most athletes because you had to learn it as an adult, not just when you're a kid and it comes natural. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. Let's take us, um, take us through the drive, starting with the drive to Steamboat. Did you think Steamboat was going to be it for you? Um, well, no, no. I always thought I'd end up back in Vermont, but I I came out here and um, joined the Winter Sports Club and um made that goal of trying to make the U.S. team in two years and had had a really good connection with with Parks Molly, who was the coach here. And um, so when I did make the ski team, it just seemed right that I would stay in Steamboat and and besides being part of the Winter Sports Club was such a was such a the support here and the support in town and having made the Olympics so quickly, um, suddenly I had this whole backing system of the, you know, Steamboat Resort and the city of Steamboat and the Winter Sports Club. And so it just kind of made sense. And besides that, the weather was so much better than it was in Vermont that I kind of never looked back. Can I ask you, you know, one of the things that I think really skilled coaches have is the ability to see something that other people may not see in an athlete. And, you know, you were raw. So would you say that Park um, saw something in you that was really special and that, I don't know, helped maybe change some of your trajectory? Um, I think that I think that um, for a coach to get a 21-year-old athlete um, and who has never competed before and who has lofty goals, it says something about that athlete. However, there's a lot of people that would maybe say that but not back it. And I was always, I was always really driven and really hardworking. So I think once he got to know me and saw how much, you know, how hard I worked and how much I wanted it, I think that helps. But I think at first, you know, maybe you just kind of brush that off and be like, okay, let's do this. You know, it's, uh, that's, it's a pretty, again, cocky thing to show up. I think you're going to make the USG team in two years, right? Yeah, it is. But also the fact that um, he was willing to keep nurturing. I think I'm kind of guiding or leading into the fact that you yourself are a coach now and you're working with kids who may come in with lofty goals and be cocky or ones that think they can't do it. And you're, you're seeing like, oh my gosh, there's something in there. I can tell, you know, it's kind of a thing that 
very few but very special coaches have the ability to see and pull out of kids either way. For me, the most important thing with my athletes is knowing them as people. Um, I don't ever want to just think of them as an athlete and only care if they do well or they don't do well, if they're, if they're more experienced or less experienced. That's, that's not nearly as big, big a concern as just knowing them as people and helping them be really good people so that when they leave winter sports club or they leave sport, um, they're really good people and they have really fond memories of their experience when they were competing, but that they felt value as, as a member of the team. And no matter what they bring, whatever, whatever level they bring to the team, um, it's still about them being, feeling really great people. You are such a grounded person. I mean, I just don't know you that well yet, though we're going to hang a lot after this interview. <laughs> um, I, uh, I can tell. And yet we're about to talk a little bit about a, what, 14, 15, 16 year whirlwind of your life that I would think might uh, not allow someone to <laughs> be grounded. And this is your career as a professional skier. So can you talk, actually, let's do this. Let's just take people a little bit through those four Olympics and your world champion crown and your national championships and share some of the, some of the ups and downs. Sure. Yeah. It's, um, when you see athletes who've done great things and it's really easy to look at them and be like, oh gosh, they're so lucky. Oh gosh, they're so good. Uh, but what you don't hear are all the ups and downs and the just the roller coaster of emotions and injuries and just the perseverance and dedication that it takes to make it to the top because you're all everyone is always going to have things happen that were not part of the plan that you have to figure out how to just you know take a take that little Y in the road and keep keep trucking on so um so I after two years of competing in the in Rocky Mountain, I um, back then you made the ski team through U.S. Nationals. So in my first U.S. Nationals, um, I placed um, fourth, which was high enough to get me on the U.S. development team. So from the development team, there are some races before Christmas called uh, U.S. Selections, which they still have now, actually. So I was in the very first U.S. Selections. Um, and there was one spot to to qualify to ski in the U.S. World Cups. So I actually got that one spot and got an opportunity to ski in the World Cups in um, Breckenridge and Lake Placid and Blackcomb. Although there, I was just a forerunner, but my score still counted for the for the Olympic selection criteria. Um, so out of those three races, I ended up being the fourth highest. And so I got the start for the 1992 Olympics. So I got to Albertville, France. Um, I, this was my third international start ever. I was 23 years old and, um, I'm up in this little village of teen France and, you know, there's like television cameras and there's like, I mean, I didn't even have the right, the right uniform for the ski team because I was on the development team. I didn't have the right gloves. The glove rep came over to me and said, I thought we had a contract with the ski team. You had to wear Royce gloves. I'm like, well, I don't know. Give me a pair then. I don't know. So it was, uh, that experience was, 
totally surreal. Like, what am I doing here? I don't even know anything about about the World Cups that, that happened. I just, I was way in over my head. So um, I fell on my butt on the fourth turn out of the gate. And that was the end of that Olympic dream. So, but they, I, quite honestly, there wasn't really an Olympic dream of I'm going to come in here and, and win this thing. I was just such a newbie. I mean, deer in the deer in the headlights for sure. So after that year, um, again, U.S. Nationals in the spring, and they picked the team off of U.S. Nationals, and I got, I believe, fourth again, and I did not get a spot on the real team. I was back on the development team again, so I had to go to U.S. Selections again, and um, won, got my spot back, went back on the World Cup, and... Um, got to ski the rest of the World Cups that year, had a pretty good year and ended up winning U.S. Nationals at the next, um, that next spring. So that would have been the spring of 93. So finally I was in the right color uniform because that was a thing back then. So, um, so headed into the 93, 94 season, um, I tweaked my back pretty good. So I couldn't ski for part of the summer. I couldn't ski that entire fall. I was just at PT the whole time. And, um, knowing that my, my teammates were all training and I was not. So that's always, you know, and I was still kind of a newbie. So that's, that's pretty intimidating too. But, um, so we're going into the season of 93, 94, and that's the Lillehammer Olympics. And when I did finally get cleared to ski, um, I was, I, I showed up ready to go and I ended up uh, qualifying for that Olympics. And, uh, it was, that was that was one of my favorite Olympics actually, just because it it was such a Nordic wonderland and it was cold and it was snowing and it was just it was just beautiful over in Lillehammer. Um, so and was that the um, the Olympics when we went from every four years the same as summer, so that you got like a, a catch up year, right? So you were in ninety two and that was your learning curve. <laughs> And then you made 94 in Lillehammer. So you got to do Olympics two years apart. I did. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Yes. So I I, I timed it quite really well. So I did. So I, I got to go from 92 and then two years later to 94. So that's when they split up. So the Summer Olympics were then at 96. And then the, our next Winter Olympics were in 98. So yes, that happened then. So how did, uh, how did Lillehammer go? <laughs> it went, it went pretty well. So the big thing for me at Lillehammer was that I was, um, I was ranked much higher and not that there were expectations on me. So when I was, when I first made the ski team, there was a girl named Donna Weinbreck who won everything all the time. And so she was the star of the, of the team. So she's the one that had all the, the pressure on her much more than the rest of us, um, which could get really, um, it kind of it kind of made you feel like you weren't worth anything, and why were you there? Because it was all about Donna on the one hand. But I learned eventually that it was a much better situation to have all the media on Donna and not you. But anyway, so I skied pretty well there. Um, I ended up, I believe, eighth, which um, which was probably about where I should have been. Um, that's about you know I was I was much better, but I still wasn't up in the top three um, yet. So um, after ninety four. Um, I skied the World Cup 95, um, skied some world championships in there. 96, there was no big events going on. Um, 97, oh, 96, I think I got on the podium for the first time in a World Cup. I think I got a third place in Austria. So that was a big deal. And then 97, I won my first World Cup in Sweden. Um, so that was a big deal. And then 90. 
98, going into 98, um, I was skiing really, really well. I was ranked first in the world. I had won the Gold Cup, which was a race on New Year's Day in Lake Placid. One run, winner takes all. They win $10,000 and a spot in the Olympics. So that was a big deal. Woo! So I won that. So I was, <laughs> I was pretty much on fire. And we were going into Breckenridge, which was the last World Cup before we went to Nagano, Japan. And I... Um, during training, I won the first run, and between tr- between during training, between the first and the second run, I cartwheeled from the top jump to the bottom jump, knocked myself out, and uh, got up, brushed myself off. Concussions weren't quite as big of a deal back then. Followed somebody to the lift, got on the lift, got off the lift, followed that person over to the course, and skied my run and packed it in again. And uh, they took me over to the hospital in Vail, where. They said, ah, she's fine. Put her on the plane. So I hopped on the plane the next morning to go to Nagano, Japan. So sore from head to toe. And, but even worse than the physical thing was the mental thing. I was totally scared to ski. So here I am ranked first in the world going into the Nagano Olympics and didn't dare ski. <laughs> so, um, I ended up, uh, I ended up 10th in those Olympics. That was definitely a bummer. That was, uh, that was a bummer. That was that was supposed to be my Olympics, and I was, you know, physically I was there, mentally I was there until that big crash. So that was pretty devastating. Um, my original plan was to retire after that Olympics and and move on, and um, but I was so devastated and so just, I just didn't know. I didn't want to end on that note. So um, I went to a ski camp that summer. And had so much fun skiing again because suddenly there wasn't this Nagano Olympics just looming over my head. Like I felt like I could just ski and have fun and not even think about competing. So went to another camp, same thing, just skiing great and having so much fun and not thinking too much. And so I was like, okay, we have a world championships this year. I'll stick it out. And, uh, you know, so I headed into the world cup and the world championships and I ended up winning the world championships that year and getting, uh, the bronze in duels. And then, and I also won the moguls overall that season as well. So, big deal. So at that point I'm like, well, I can't quit now. I'm the, you know, I'm the reigning world championship. So world champion. So I skied the next year and won the overall world, um, moguls world cup again. And then the next year was world championships again. And I was the reigning world champions. I was like, I got to ski again. So, um, I did. And that summer I actually wrecked my shoulder. So I missed a bunch of training and a bunch of, uh, a bunch, the first few World Cups of the season. Um, but I did ski at World Championships, skied pretty well. I did not defend my title, but um, kept me in the hunt. And then it was like, well, next year is the Olympics. So I guess I'm sticking <laughs> around. So, <laughs> so I stuck around for, uh, for 2002 and went into 2002 skiing better than I ever had. And um, it, uh, I loved that course, Deer Valley, really long, really big bumps, steep, and, you know, kind of, kind of really my kind of course, just because I was always really big and strong. And I, um, I qualified second in semifinals. And in my finals run, I was, a, I had a little, a little short on one of my twisters on my bottom air, and the judges did not like that. So I ended up seventh there, which was, which was, Sort of devastating, but also sort of like, it's okay. I, I left it all on the hill and, you know, I did make that little mistake, but I, uh, I felt okay with it 
um, for sure. I threw a new air on the top jump that I'd never done in competition before. So that was pretty cool. And um, so I finished out the year on the World Cup and then I retired after that. Okay. Uh, and I'm exhausted. <laughs> Let's take a quick recovery break. And now a word from our sponsor, Honey Stinger. <laughs> Well, it's a good thing we have these Honey Stinger waffles right here to keep us going for the yeah. second half of our interview. All right. Um, I'm actually ch- chowing down a couple of performance chews in the Stingerita lime flavor. Uh, for all of you who don't know, Honey Stinger is the sponsor of the SSWSC show. They make amazing energy products basically with a foundation of honey, which is a beautiful natural ingredient that really does help give you energy quickly. They have this really cool three-part program. By the way, I'm winging this. How am I doing? Great. Awesome. Um, It's the prepare, perform, and recover phase. And they make products for all of those right now. Mm. Oh, yeah. Putting down one of these chews. Who says you can't use these when you're doing interviews? Who says you can't use Honey Stinger products when you're having a business bonk, right? <laughs> it's not just for the, the slopes and the trails. Anyway, um, if you want to check out Honey Stinger, go to HoneyStinger.com. In fact, you should check out Honey Stinger and support them. By supporting them, you support us all right now. Back to the show. All right, we're back. Um, yeah, we didn't go anywhere, by the way. And I'm still chewing my chew, which is actually absolutely delicious. So, Anne, one of the things that really strikes me is the fact that you kept going through all of this crap. I mean, there were so many amazing things. You had such lofty goals. If your end-all, be-all goal in your life that would tell you you're a successful human is to get on the podium in the Olympics. You didn't do that, yet you're sitting here a happy, grounded, amazing, successful human. And you had to overcome many mental blocks to even achieve what you achieved, which I think is basically a pretty storied career. There aren't that many people who race at the level you did for 15-ish years of your life, which is absolutely amazing. Um is there, you mentioned when you had that big crash that put you in the weird headspace going into Nagano in 1998, you mentioned that you did a camp afterwards and it was fun again. Am I picking up on like what, what it was that actually helped you continue? Was it all about just getting back to the fun of it? Definitely. Um, after being on the World Cup for what would that have been? Probably seven or eight years. Um, it becomes pretty routine, packing your bags, traveling to the next place, learning a course, competing, packing your bags, and um, and just a lot of pressure as well. I, I definitely, um, I was always shooting for the top. So if I didn't win, then to me, that was a failure. So as you can imagine, I didn't, I didn't win, win that much. So um, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of, mental hardship for me for sure to keep moving forward and and then with that 98 olympics always hanging over my head um it just everything i did it was you know that olympics coming up and that's when i need to perform and that's it just it just 
looking back at it now, you know, it definitely it wear it wore on me for sure. And uh, as it would anyone, I'm sure. Um, I put a lot of my value as a person into that winning that Olympic medal. So it took a long time to get over it from um, from the Olympian side of things. But I got into skiing because I love to ski. So to be able to go to a ski camp and not have to worry about winning an Olympic medal at the Nagano Games was like, oh, total. I mean, this is awesome. I can actually ski and I can actually have fun again and not just be skiing to win that medal. So um, it made a huge difference, but it, it's, it took a long time for me to be able to talk about the Olympics um, without getting really, really sad, I would say. And um, people would say, yeah, but look at all the great stuff that you did in your career. Yeah, that's true. But my ultimate goal was always to win the Olympic medal and I didn't. So that's, that's, that's always, it's always going to be hard to accept that. Um, you know, what could I have done differently? And those are things that um, I talk to my athletes a lot about, you know, um, and that's why it's so important to me that I, that all these athletes are people before they're athletes is just to know their, um, their self-worth is not tied up and how good of a skier they are. Um, but when I look back, I think the things I didn't, I didn't really believe that I could win a medal. I didn't, I kind of didn't, uh, didn't, I, I don't feel like I was in the driver's seat of winning a medal. I felt like, yeah, I, I'm going to put in all this work and then I'm going to go to the Olympics and then I'm going to win a medal. But I didn't really uh, put in the the self-confidence that I actually could do it. Like I just kind of wanted it to happen, which as we all know, that's you don't just sign up for the Olympics. You got to make it happen. So, um, you know, one achievement was to make the Olympics, but I never took it to the next step of you know, I don't want to just make the Olympics. I want to, I, I'm going to win that medal. Not that I want to win that medal, but I'm going to win the medal, that medal. And um, in 2002, I was definitely good enough. I was skiing really, really well. And uh, I think it could have happened. And I think if I had, if I had just said to myself, I'm winning a medal, I can do this. I think it would have made a huge difference. And I just was missing that little bit of self-confidence um, that, to make that happen. It's, it's interesting because the things that were most elusive to you, hardest for you that you beat yourself up about for, for a long time are the things that probably are making you like the world champion coach that you are. You know what I mean? Like if you think like, I want to win a medal in the Olympics, well, there aren't, you don't get on a podium for coaching, but like, it's very possible that all of these experiences are making you an even better coach than the athlete you ever were. I think that I know I've experienced a lot firsthand. Um, so, and not that, I mean, everybody, again, everybody's journey is a little bit different and everybody needs different, different things to, to help them succeed. Um, but I've seen a lot. I traveled the world for 11 years and, um, you know, with, with skiers from all over, all over the world and, you know, got to be friends with them and learned what they did and learned their, their secrets. I don't know if you can say, call them secrets for competing and success. And, um, so I have a lot of knowledge in there and I have, when I see my athletes at winter sports club, um, I think I can be really helpful in a lot of different situations. I like to be the top, um, the top coach at competitions. I like to help my guys get in the right headspace. 
and um, I've had different top coaches and some drove me crazy and some I liked. And uh, so I try to learn, learn each athlete and what they need and um, how I can, I can ensure that they're going to have their, put in their best performance. Oh my, there's so much to continue pulling out of this. And I think I want to shift a little bit to um, the foundation, the strength and conditioning part of what you do. I mean, this is basically soccer, gymnastics, swimming, all the things you mentioned were strength and conditioning when you were a kid for your skiing career. You now are a strength and conditioning coach. You're an expert in that arena as well. Can you explain a little bit about, you know, the importance of strength and conditioning for moguls, especially for freestyle skiing that you coach? So um, when I was competing, I was about 5'9". I still am about 5'9". And I weighed, I weighed about 25 pounds more than I weigh now. And I was all about being strong as an ox. And I was. Um, I was big for a mogul skier for sure. I was tall as well as, as big and strong. And I put a lot of energy into off-season training and lifting weights. And um, I did a ton of um, – I, I played soccer for a long time, but I also did a ton of um, plyometrics and agility field workouts. Um, and I knock on wood, I never, except for my one shoulder injury, 11 years on the World Cup, I never got hurt. I never had knee issues. I never, um, and I attribute that to the amount of prep- preparation that I did put into training in the off season. Um, I, with my guys now, I, it's really important to me that they're strong, but it's more important to me that they can use that strength so that they can actually, I mean, you can be as strong as, as you want, but if you can't use your strength, it really isn't going to do you much good. And in mobile skiing, it's such a fast switch sport, um, that they really need to be able to use their strength. And obviously they need to be strong to pull themselves out of, out of bad situations and they need, um, and just for injury prevention, um, but I really want their fast switch muscles to be to be working. So a lot of what we do is we'll do heavy lifts and then I'll make them do quick box jumps or quick feet or something so that they have to, when they're fatigued, they have to make their muscles work quickly. Um, and that's that's a lot of the training that I did back in the day as well. So um, I think that's I think that's really important to for mogul skiers. And then the other part of the training that we do a lot of is um, water ramping and trampolining because the two jumps in our sport are so important. So it's definitely a balance of how tired they are from water ramping and climbing, you know, 600 stairs over the course of a day and then getting them to the gym and making them do squats. And um, so it's kind of, it's kind of made it, made it really fun for me to be able to combine those two things and see the ski side of it, but also see the, the off snow preparation side. Well, it's funny. I mean, anybody who's watching mogul skiing, and many people have never seen it in person. They just watch it in the Olympics or, you know, on big races that are shown on ESPN or something. And they just go, oh, my God, their knees. There's no way that that person is not going to have knee replacements in their life, you know. And one of my questions I was going to ask is, can you do moguls and eliminate long-term or short-term injuries through a robust strength regimen? And you kind of answered that already. Well, yeah, but in full disclosure, I actually ha- do have a knee replacement and a hip replacement. But 
that also could be genetic. My dad had a number of, um, he had three joint replacements. Um, and I always had hip problems even before I skied moguls. So I don't attribute my hip to anything to do with moguls. Um, knees. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work for your knees. Um, I, can you get through it and not be decrepit when you're older? I think that you can, you can at least limit the amount of, uh, of arthritis you're going to get just through strength <laughs> when you're doing it. But I think like any sport, and I don't think it's just mogul specific. I mean, look at all the Alpine guys that are the same way, you know, they're so, they're so sore later in life. And it's, but it's, I think it's any sport. Our bodies aren't really designed to put in the hours of physical activity that we do these days in preparation for being an elite athlete. So I think that watching moguls and thinking that your knees are never going to be the same I don't think you can totally single out moguls and say it's just a mogul skiing thing. I think it's just the amount of physical activity that we do. Okay, full disclosure, I had a spinal fusion last year and I have a bionic back. You know, um, (laughs) I think you're right. If you, I was talking to a friend, she's like, well, you kind of pushed your body hard for a couple of decades or more of your life, you know, at like a world-class level full-time job. Um, That's true. Other people who who put that kind of time into a business life, they have other issues. They have heart issues. They have high blood sure. pressure. You know, so, hey, every great thing we do does come with something. But it's cool to know that you can limit it and you can stay strong. Yeah, for sure. I'm, you just, you adapt. As you get older, you just, you just adapt. You figure out what you can do with the, that doesn't hurt and uh, and you get your endorphins going that way. All right, let's just talk about then why is this such a great sport for kids? Um, so we'll go back to the party scene, right? Just the music blaring and the, and the, um, it's just a really encouraging atmosphere. I don't find it to be cutthroat at all. And, um, there's moguls all over the mountain. Any mountain that you go to is going to have moguls. So, the people that you see on the mountain skiing the moguls are usually the best skiers on the mountain. So what a great opportunity for your kid to get involved with mogul skiing at a young age so that they can ski anything. If you can ski moguls competently, you literally can ski anywhere on the mountain. Okay, this is funny because I just have a note that says, U.S. women's mogul skiing badassery. (laughs) We're supposed to talk about that. I want to talk about that. But actually, it's funny because right before we got on, we were talking about uh, one of our previous episodes with Olivia Giaccio. And, you know, she's just one of the many stars that are rising up through the ranks. You know, skiing for women is pretty much a level playing field now. Women are doing almost all the same um, disciplines as men, and we're doing it really well, aren't we? So Steamboat has a pretty good legacy of, of women mogul skiers. We had a stint in there for, I don't know, four or five years where we put a, a female on the, the U.S. ski team every year, which is pretty amazing. Um, and that's just recently, that's um, Jalen Koff, who just won the silver medal in the last Olympics, and Olivia and um, Avital Shimko and Kenzie Radway, born and raised here. So it's pretty cool that uh, we have these these really strong female mogul skiers that just the, the legacy that they've uh, 
that they're creating for our guys is, is really, really cool. And that's one of the coolest things about Winter Sports Club is you can actually know somebody who makes the U.S. ski team. You can actually know and be friends with somebody who goes to the Olympics. And that's just so unheard of for so many people. They just can't even imagine that. I mean, how many people do I see every single day and I'm friends with and I'm a four-time Olympian and they don't care, right? It's just it's just one more thing that, you know, one of their friends, yeah, just one of the things about, excuse me, one of the things about them. You know, I I love that. It's like, yeah, you guys are dime a dozen here. <laughs> That's <laughs> so part true. of what makes Steamboat so special. And talk about legacy. I mean, you were part of the crew that created the foundation and the legacy for these women coming up. So, hey, they're supposed to take it to the next level every single generation that comes. Um, and I think you really did your part to help, <laughs> to help not only perform and show them what you can do out there, but to give back. I hope so. I, I definitely hope so. I, I had amazing opportunities and amazing support when I was on the ski team. And um, it's giving, giving the athletes here coming up through the ranks now, those same opportunities and that level of support and, you know, knowing that, that, I really care about them. That's, that's really important to me. I just, I just feel like it's, the sport is really fun and we should celebrate it and we should celebrate these kids that are all into it. So that's, that's what I like to do. Yeah. It's all a celebration. You know, the training is the work. The competitions are the celebration. I'm here. I'm with you. Um, I do love a story about your, uh, this is just a, a little side trip, field trip for us. You know, you didn't stay in Steamboat after you moved here and you raced and you traveled the world. Uh, you met somebody, you had children. Didn't you move? I did. So um, when I retired from skiing after 2002, I was exhausted. I was mentally fried and um, and I, I needed to get get away from skiing for a little while. So... Um, and I was then, I'd been married for two years and my husband had decided to go back to school at CU. So, um, I moved down there and we had a kid and then we, I had a kid actually, I retired in 2002. I had my first daughter in 2003 and then my other daughter in 2005. So, I mean, but I wasn't, I mean, I was 35 years old at that point too. So, um, and life down there was good, but we were always figuring out how are we going to, when are we going to go up to the, where are we, where are we going to stay when we go up to Steamboat? Why don't we, you know, got to get these kids on snow. And it was still, we were still trying really hard to pretend we were living here. And um, finally, when our kids were going into fourth and sixth grade and we had the brutal nine hour drive back from Steamboat to Louisville, we were like, what are we doing? So we <laughs> For- <laughs> We figured out how to make it work and and moved up here and both kids joined the Winter Sports Club and um, one my older daughter is not interested in competition and she, you know much more of a she's a good skier but much more of a recreational skier and my younger daughter she jumped right on board and was was all about it from the get go. Um, just you know FYI the usual drive time is roughly three hours maybe less on a good day so yeah that was a really bad one. Um, and I'm glad you had that drive because it brought you back here full time and your kids get to enjoy this wonderful life from a younger age than you did. How cool is that? All right. We're wrapping up here quick, but I do have some fun facts that I want to share. 
about Anne Battelle. You might have to share a quick story about each one. Are you fluent in Spanish? No, I'm not fluent in Spanish. Why does it say that? Is that on your wiki? You have a Wikipedia page. I think it actually is on my wiki. So when I was in seventh grade, uh, my dad took a sabbatical from the University of Vermont, and we moved to Mexico City. So I lived down there for 14 months, and uh, so I learned a lot of Spanish, and then I took Spanish through high school and college. So I, I could do pretty well with it, but... Um, now I pretty much speak a pretty strong Dora ease. Okay, we're going to change that wiki page. Um, do you still play the oboe? God, no. The very popular oboe. No, I played the oboe through sophomore year in, in high school. Um, one other thing, if you Google Anne Battelle, you will see that she has an IMBD profile. And so you're like, whoa, is she also a movie star? Uh, I'm just going to go with yes on that one. Uh, What movie were you in? I've been in a couple of Warren Miller movies and a Greg Stump movie too, actually. Ooh, did you get any speaking parts? No, just skiing. (laughs) They didn't didn't trust me with that. (laughs) Oh, that's so great. Um, Any other fun facts you want to throw out? Um... All right, I have one last one. This is channeled through my daughter, Wilder, who always wants to know, what is your favorite snack on and off the lifts? Well, clearly I need to say Honey Stinger products. <laughs> Gummies, to be exact. Um, I ate a lot of granola bars, all different kinds. Granola bars, like Nature Valley? Yep, like the Nature old Valley, school? yep. All right. I do like those. You know, when those get really old and all mushed up in the thing, you can just use them as granola. granola exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's a quick tip. All right. We're going to wrap up today by uh, asking you the question that we ask every guest who comes on this show. What is the greatest lesson you've learned through sport? The greatest lesson I've learned through sport is to be true to yourself and when you're training and competing, you're doing it for yourself. You're not ever trying to impress anybody, but you want to make yourself feel good. And you are awesome. Can't wait to hang out with you some more. <laughs> you too, Nicole. Thank you for listening to the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club Show presented by Honey Stinger. Check out the club's winter and summer programs at sswsc.org. If you have a special topic or guest you want featured, we'd love to hear from you. Now get out there and support, lead, or be a champion on or off the mountain. <laughs>